So Deuteronomy 4, verse 5. Please stand for the reading of God's word. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them into the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as the body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Here ends the reading. This is God's word. Good morning. In case you forgot who I am, my name is Dave Gunlock, and I am relaxed and refreshed. Now, I've been gone for a couple of weeks. I've actually been home most of the time, but taking a nice little personal retreat slash vacation, staycation. Uh, I've had a great time with my wife and my family around town. Turns out Southern California is not a bad, um, like, vacation destination. Um, <laughs> I spent a day in Laguna by myself. I'm like, yeah, I could, I could go to Greece, you know, but this is, this is pretty good. No jet lag. This, is, this works. So um, I got a couple days uh, to myself. I went to a retreat center up in Pasadena for a couple days, a really cool spiritual retreat center. So I'm especially spiritual now. Um, and uh, no, but it's been really a, a nice couple of weeks and I'm grateful to be back. Uh, grateful to be here. We had Rick Langer here two weeks ago and then Todd Pickett last week teaching. They did a, I thought a great job. And so I'm going to just jump us back into our series in Deuteronomy. We took last week off, Todd taught on Psalm 95, but we're going to jump back into our summer series on Deuteronomy. We're looking at this theme of covenant. Uh, What does it mean to be in this covenant relationship with the God of the universe? What does it mean to be God's covenant people? And we're looking at, of course, Israel and Deuteronomy and the old covenant and some of the dynamics of that. And, and we're trying to think of how, how does this work now for us as new covenant Christians or what are some of the things that carry over from that? So um, we're going to do that today. And uh, we're starting, we're going back to chapter four now. Um, and I think this is a great way to jump back into Deuteronomy. Uh, this passage gives us the larger picture of what God's plan for his covenant people was and is. And I want to focus in today on verse 6. Look at verse 6 for a second. God's talking about the decrees he's giving Israel as they enter the promised land. And he says, observe them carefully, for, th- for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So I want to look at this vision that God has for his people, a vision that goes well beyond the people themselves to the the nations in the world around them. And God was giving them these covenant laws. And in Deuteronomy, he's saying, these laws are for you that it would go well with you. But these laws are also for more than you. 
These laws are, as you live this out, you are going to be this compelling alternative to the nations who will, be, who will see you and be drawn to the distinction, the, the way that you're different, and that you will attract the nations. You'll be a light to the nations. So I want to talk about that dynamic today. I want to talk about it uh, with Israel, and then I want to talk about it um, with us today. That, that this vocation is, is much bigger than just something up for ourselves. It's, it's for the world. So let's talk about Israel for a second. Um, let me put up a little map here of ancient uh, the ancient Near East, of course, you have Egypt where Israel came out from, and then you have Israel right there in the middle, and then places like Assyria, Mesopotamia. Um, you know, I was, I was reminded this week, uh, in light of our independence, and you know, we're, we're in this, you know, America was sort of an experiment, right? I mean, it was this, this new thing that happened, and it's been going, this experiment, for over 200 years. Um, I was reminded this week of what an experiment Israel was, that God was like, engaging in a pretty radical experiment. I want to just try to put this in modern language to feel what was going on. You know, he took a group of people in Egypt who had been an enslaved people group, okay? So this was an oppressed ethnic minority living in what was at that time the most powerful nation in the world. So we can picture things like that that still happen today. And God raised up this charismatic leader, Moses, and he delivered the people, and they, they fled from this oppressed situation, right, into the desert. And so they became like this group of refugees. And we've seen, you know, refugees fleeing persecution in modern times. So picture like this, this group of, of people coming out of this nation, fleeing into the wilderness, right? That's what happens. And, but it doesn't stop there. They then enter into the wilderness, and then they move into this land, Israel, and they begin conquering nations, and they actually become a nation of their own. And so God enters into this covenant with this group of former slaves, come out to get their freedom, and he actually gives them a new nation with new laws and a new society. And, he's, he's, and, and the whole pur- purpose of these laws is I want to show you what freedom looks like. You guys know slavery. You know oppression. You know unjust, unjust power structures. I'm giving you a nation of your own and laws that exist to preserve and nurture and safeguard your freedom. I want you to feel what freedom with me feels like. And the point I want to make today is that all of that was happening on the public stage of history. Okay, I mean, Israel's this little, it's a little place, it's a little nation, but it's right on these very strategic trade routes in the ancient Near East. So it's caught right in the middle of these massive empires of the time. And all of these nations are seeing this. They're hearing about this group of refugees that comes out and then actually forms a nation. These former slaves and these these. These nations must be wondering, I wonder how this is going to (laughs) go. You know, what's this going to be like? What's it going to be like for these people? Now they're a nation of their own. I wonder what that's going to be like. And God wanted it to be like that. He wanted this to be, he wanted his people to be on display to the watching world. He wanted the nations to look and be curious about this new phenomenon. And he wanted Israel to look different and to be something beautiful and new and distinct in that time and age that the nations go, wow, this is different. This is, a, this is an amazing thing that's happened. And this is a wise and, and, and amazing nation. That was, that was God's plan. Of course, we're familiar with the, the language that I, Isaiah uses. God said to Israel, you will be a light to the nations. 
So I'll make our, my cute little light up here. Right? That was, that was Israel's vocation, that they would be a light to the nations. Let me read it again. Um, observe these commandments, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The nations would be drawn to this experiment, this phenomenon that God was doing through Israel. Uh, now, two things that was supposed to distinguish Israel from the nations that are actually explicitly mentioned in this passage. I'll put them up here. The first was what would be distinct about them is the quality of their relationship with their God, Yahweh. So look at verse 7. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? Okay, there was supposed to be a uniqueness in their relationship with God. And the uniqueness was there was, a, there was an intimacy, a closeness, a nearness that Yahweh had, a responsiveness that Yahweh had to his people Israel. And this might not strike us today, but in the ancient world, if you know what ancient religions look like, you would feel the distinction of Yahweh's relationship with his people, okay? Um, in the ancient world, a lot of the other gods that people believed in were very distant gods and, frankly, very temperamental gods, okay? It was really easy to upset the gods. And so ancient people would do all sorts of things to try to uh, appease their gods, to try to manipulate their gods, to do what they wanted. Ancient peoples would sacrifice their own children, to their gods sometimes, they would perform like self-destructive behavior. They'd cut themselves. They'd work themselves into like frenzies to try to get their gods to do what they wanted them to do. There's lots of immorality wrapped up in ancient religions. Lots of like temple prostitution to try to get the fertility gods to do what you wanted. So you'd have, you know, crops the next year. So in that context, Yahweh's relationship with Israel was so different. And we take this for granted now, but it's like, no, Yahweh's a God who who's close to his people. He listens to them. He responds to them. He loves them. It's different. It looked different. It felt different. And so, so much of the covenant in Deuteronomy is about keeping that closeness with God. Love God with your heart, with your soul, with your strength. So there's a uniqueness in their relationship with God. And then the other thing that's mentioned in this passage was the quality of their whole society via the laws that God gave them. Um, Where'd I go here? Oh, look at verse 8. Take a look at verse 8. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I am setting before you today? So it was the laws that God gave them that were righteous, that were right, that were good, that were humane, that would distinguish them from the nations. And again, this is lost on us today. We actually are living the fruits of some of the old covenant. Now societies are built around the Ten Commandments and some of these things. But in ancient times, um, ancient societies could be pretty brutal places. It was kind of like a might makes right. You know, that was sort of won the day. Lots of violence, um, lots of injustice, lots of cruelty. Um, this is a tough place to be. And, and Israel's laws were different. They were, they were countercultural in that sense. And, and like, if you read any ancient Near Eastern scholars, whether Christian or, or not, um, they will say, yeah, Israel's laws stand out in that day as particularly just and humane. And if you just think about the Ten Commandments, I mean, they are, those were revolutionary laws at that time. And if you were to go and read the rest of the, like, detailed laws of the Old Covenant, like Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 
for like the next 10 chapters. I'd actually encourage you to read those chapters sometime this summer. I read them recently because I had to because I'm studying for this. Um, so I read through the laws. I was like, I wonder what, I, I'm curious, like what are these, I mean, we know the 10 commandments, but what are, what are like, I just want to get inside the old covenant again and hear some of the laws that he gave to this, this new, you know, nation. And here's what I will say. I was so pleasantly surprised by just the, the feel of, of these laws. And, and I feel like the, the Old Testament gets a really bad rap today in, in a lot of church circles. Uh, and what we do is we kind of take our 21st century American lens and we try to put that on an ancient society. And we, and we kind of like, hey, this feels weird. And I don't like, I don't like some of these laws. But if you, if you set these laws in the original context, um, they are incredibly refreshing and very life-giving laws. And I, I was struck by two things. I'll let you decide if you want to do this yourself. But I was struck by two things. One, just how just the laws are. And, and what, by that, I mean, in Israel, these laws, there, there's innocent people go free and guilty people are punished, regardless of class or, or status or wealth or, or, or whatever. And it's, it's actually beautifully intuitive and simple. It's like, yeah, that's how society should be. Guilty people should set, have consequences. Innocent people shouldn't. <laughs> and that's increasingly a complicated thing, I think, in today's world. And I'm like, no, there's something so right and just and fair about these laws. So that's the first thing that hit me. The other thing is, and this is what really hit me, how humane these laws are, particularly in their original context. Like you just can feel God's compassion for human beings embedded in the laws that he gave to Israel as a nation. So let me just throw out a couple examples, like 10 commandments, the Sabbath command. Okay. That was revolutionary in that day. But for God to institute one day of the week where everyone just stops, like you're just going to stop. You don't have to work. Everyone stop, rest, relax, chill, worship, right? Rich, poor, slave, free, donkeys, everybody gets to take a break. Like in light of the fact that they were former slaves, you know, like I want to remind you of your freedom. And so once a week, we're just going to celebrate our freedom, an incredibly humane law back then. And then, of course, you had not just the Sabbath day, you had the sabbatical year. Every seven years, there was a Sabbath on certain things, like slaves were freed every seven years at the sabbatical year. Debts were canceled uh, every seven years. There was a humaneness that God wasn't going to allow these like generational, institutional forms of slavery get people, but there was, there was freedom to be had. Um, some of you may know about the harvesting laws. If you owned a field, uh, you'd go, you know, you'd harvest your field and you're only allowed to go over it once. You couldn't go over it a second time. You remember why you don't go over it a second time? Right? You leave room, right, for the, for the orphan and the widow and the fatherless and the alien to come through and glean from your fields. That the, 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 the poor and the needy could gather from your fields. Um, there's some cool law, uh, laws associated with war and marriage. So here's what I'll just mention one. Uh, a recently married uh, man was not sent to war for one year. Let me read you the law. If a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war. I like this part. Or have any duty laid on him. <laughs> for one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. Right? Come on. <laughs> to those two engaged couples. All right? Here we go. Um, so these, these just and humane laws, all that to say, I was pleasantly surprised. And again, the, the, the point of this, 
the, the point I'm making is this didn't just exist for Israel's sake, though of course it did. But as they lived this out, they would then be a light to the nations. We read that, we sang that song just before the sermon. Uh, it's, it's from Psalm 34. And the, the quote is, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? And in a sense, um, that's what Israel was invited to do. They were invited to taste and see that their Lord was good. And as they lived that out, they were essentially inviting the surrounding nations. Check this out. Look at our society. Look at our relationship with God. And you too, you taste and see as you watch us that our Lord is good. And that the nations would be drawn to their light. That was, that was the vision. That was the experiment. So any of you who know the story, um, know two things about the story. First is, this didn't play out quite so well in reality with, with Old Covenant Israel, right? For the most part, uh, the nation did not fulfill their role as being a light to the, to the nations. The reason is they didn't remain faithful to the covenant. They themselves didn't taste and see that the Lord was good. They didn't stay faithful to the Lord. They pursued other gods. And because of that, they became like all the other nations. They didn't offer a distinct alternative uh, to the other nations. So that's how it actually played out for the most part. But the other thing we know is, of course, that 2,000 years ago, an Israelite, a Jew, Jesus Christ, came, and he perfectly fulfilled this role of being a light to the nations. He remained faithful to his God, to the covenant with his God. He lived this beautiful life. And then then through his death and resurrection, he then offers to the nations his light. And this was God's plan for Israel all along. Even back with with Abraham. Remember the story of Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. God said, I'm choosing you. I'm picking you. And we're entering into a relationship together. And I'm going to bless you. And you're going to, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. That was, that was, Abraham's vocation, you are blessed in order to be a blessing. That was to be Israel's vocation. And ultimately, Jesus perfectly fulfills that vocation of being blessed by his father in order to bless the nations. And now through faith in Jesus, we all can experience the blessing of Abraham. And now through faith in Jesus, we become part of God's covenant people, right? Now, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles together through faith in Jesus Christ, called to live out this covenant relationship with our God through Jesus Christ and the Spirit, and then called into this vocation of then being a light to the nations, offering a compelling alternative to the world around us, right? So let me turn now to uh, 21st century American life, and let me just show you a couple passages um, that get at, you know, our part in this now. This is from First Peter. Peter says, you are a chosen people. He's speaking to Jews and Gentiles now. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Okay? Now not just talking to Jews, but Jews and Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the vocation. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You're God's chosen people. Live out that life right in the midst of all these other people so that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, and they probably will from time to time, they will see the way you live your life and will offer them a compelling alternative. Or more simply put, Jesus says it this way to his disciples. You're the light of the world, right? Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So this is our role now, to be a light to the nations. 
And, and I just want to be careful. I, I know the parallels aren't perfect with like Old Covenant Israel and the church today. Israel was like an ethnic, right? A, 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 a political entity and nation. The church is obviously not that. It's a multi-ethnic, multinational. It's not political in that sense, um, a group of people. But that same dynamic is present for us today. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. We are now to be light, as Jesus says. Um, I love this quote. I think this is in your bulletin. Uh, Christians are called to be, here's the phrase, countercultural for the common good. We're to look different than the culture, but for the sake of the culture, just as Israel was. We are called to bring a vision of what is orderly, right, abundant, and beautiful to the broader culture. This vision is expressed in communities of faith where believers love and care for one another well and then invite others in to experience that same grace. That is our vocation today. All right, so um, here's a different map. (laughs) Not the map I showed you earlier, not the ancient Near East. This is modern-day Orange County. Uh, And we are somewhere around there, right? Grace Fellowship Church. Called to be uh, a light to our coworkers and our neighbors and our friends, the people in our communities. Called into this posture where, where we say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Where we are living our lives, we're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. We're taking in the freedom that we have, just as Israel was experienced a certain kind of freedom. We now have freedom in Christ, freedom from sin and its consequences. We have this relationship with God through his spirit. We have God's faithfulness. We have all these spiritual blessings that hopefully we're taking in each day. We're tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And then as we live that out, we can say to the culture, hey, taste and see. Our Lord is good. You're invited into this too. So I want to leave us, um, I want to give you three examples uh, today of what I think how we can live as a counterculture for the common good. Three ways that we can offer a distinct alternative to the culture around us. And I could come up with 10 pretty quickly. Here's three of them. And I invite you to fill in numbers 4 through 10 out on the patio afterwards. Have a conversation. What else? What, what other ways do you think this makes sense for us today? And, and um, I think, you know, the gospel intersects with every specific culture in different ways. So the way that the gospel intersected with first century Israel is very different than it, the way it intersects with 21st century America. So the ways that will look different will be different depending on the culture that we're we're a part of. So I, I, want, I was thinking of our modern culture and its unique, you know, things that it emphasizes. And then I was also thinking of, I just took the Ten Commandments and was thinking, what are, how do some of these commandments fit with 21st century America? Okay? So here's, I'll end with this. Three ways that I, I think we can look distinct and offer a compelling alternative to our culture. I'll put them up here. Um, you still good? You good? Okay. This is where it gets practical. If you'll ask me for the last 10 minutes, we're back. Um, Again, you get to fill out four through 10. Here's one through three in no particular order. Um, Here's one. I think the quality of our relationships can be a light uh, to the nations, to our culture. And and here I'm thinking, if you want to turn to chapter five, you can if you want. You can look at the 10 commandments. Um, I'm thinking of two commandments here. Uh, The one in verse 16 where it says, honor your father and your mother. This command to honor our parents. 
Uh, and then the, the verse 18, uh, do not commit adultery. Essentially, this command to honor your spouse. So these are getting at some of the core covenant relationships that we have. In this case, family. You know, spouses, kids, parents. And I want to extend that to, to broaden that to just consider our relationships in general. And here's, here's my thought. As Christians, we have experienced the covenant love of Jesus Christ. We've experienced a God who, is, who has met us, entered into relationship with us, and who is very long-suffering with us, right? Who puts up with us day in and day out with our sin, who forgives us again and again, who sticks with us, who has a very sticky kind of um, covenant love, right? It's this, yeah, that's the best way to say it. He's, it's, he just sticks with us through thick and thin. And we experience that kind of love and that, that love should then spill out into our relationships with one another. We've experienced that. And then we offer that to one another in, to our, in our marriages, uh, with our families, with our friends, with our church community. That we have these, these covenant relationships with one another. That we stick with one another through thick and thin. That we don't run quickly when things get challenging. We have these long-term, right, connections with one another. And I say that because we're living in a moment right now in 21st century America where our culture is absolutely enamored with a certain version of freedom. Our culture loves freedom. And I'm talking about like individual autonomy. Like I want the freedom to be who I am, to define myself the way I want, right? To chart my own course, to redefine myself how I want. That is like the culture is selling that all the time. And what you don't want is some external thing holding you back from that, right? You be you, you go after whatever's in there, and you do it. And that's like the gold standard, to, to be true to that voice inside and go for it. Don't let any authorities or anything outside of you decide that, what that should be for. You do that. Problem with that view of, of, <laughs> of freedom is that bumps up against covenant really quickly, right? Like that doesn't actually work in marriage very well, Right? And that it actually, it doesn't work in friendships either. Like friendships require that you show up. You, you have to show up and be there when it's hard and when it doesn't fit with what you're feeling in here, right? That doesn't work with church communion. A church communion, you, you kind of have to, you got to show up on Sundays, even when you don't really want to be there, right? Like that freedom bumps up against relationship. They're at odds with each other. And what I think is happening is our culture is beginning to feel the effects of its love of freedom. And you have people who are increasingly experiencing lonely lives, like isolated, lonely, even though they're like connected to a thousand people online maybe, like in terms of their experience of real relationships that are long-term, that are rooted, where people know them deeply, where people stand by them even when it gets hard, that is happening less and less. Obviously, marriage is on the decline. Kids are being raised in, in single-parent homes way more than before. And any form of organizational grouping like a church is, is on the decline. And people are feeling the effects of that. And I think there's a loneliness that is settling in. And I think the church has this beautiful opportunity to say, hey, in the midst of that loneliness, taste and see what covenant looks like. Like taste and see relationships that are, that are fiercely committed to one another. Marriages, 
like some of the marriages in this room that have lasted 50, 60 years. Friendships that go back 30, 40 years. A group of people that meet together week in and week out when it's easy, when it's hard. Taste and see that and enter into this and find out what it means to, to actually be known for who you are, to be forgiven, to be put up with. <laughs> Feel the sticky love of Jesus Christ that you're hungering for so much even in your quest for freedom. So I think our relationships, all that to say, can look different. All right, two more. These will go by a little quicker. Second one, how about the quality of our presence with people? I'm thinking that when I say that, I mean being people who have a non-anxious, centered, grounded presence. And I'm thinking of the Sabbath command in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Verse 15, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought you out of there. Therefore, the Lord God has commanded you to observe Sabbath. Um, God gave us this day. And whether you take it as a 24-hour period or you find other ways to, to, to have this posture, but he gave us this day where we just stop. It's like, you know what? Just stop. <laughs> Slow down. Rest. Play, nap, be with one another, worship, enjoy my creation. Like, just stop. Be still and know that I am God. He gave us this day. I want you to be these centered, unhurried, rested, grounded people. We're grounded in their identity, uh, in my love, in being my children. And that's what I want for you. And I say that one because we're living in a cultural moment where people are absolutely enamored with activity. (laughs) I mean, in Orange County, people are enamored. They worship activity, whether that's achievement and people are, you know, defining themselves by what they produce, what they can accomplish, what they can do. And when they're not achieving, people then move to another activity called entertainment and distraction. And we go onto our phones or we, we veg out in front of the TV and we go back and forth between these two forms of entertainment. I'm achieving, I'm achieving, achieving, or I'm being entertained or I'm, I'm getting information. I'm never stopping. I'm either achieving or I'm distracting and being entertained, right? That's, we just go back and forth between those two things. Our culture does. And I think that the culture is beginning to feel, certainly kids <laughs> are beginning to feel the effects of that love affair with activity, if I can put it that way. And you look inside people's hearts, there's so much anxiety out there, more than ever before. There's a restlessness, there's an anxiousness to our culture, and people don't know who they are when they are not achieving something. Uh, They don't know what to do with themselves when they're not being entertained. They don't know how to just sit with themselves for 20 20 minutes. We've lost that basic um, posture as human beings. And there's a restlessness. There's There's a groundlessness to that. And I think, again, that the church today has this opportunity to say, taste and see Sabbath. Taste and see presence. Taste and see a life that doesn't always have to be doing something or always have to be taking something in. Taste and see the freedom that comes from knowing that you are God's child and that is what defines you. Not what you can produce, not what you can achieve. Taste the freedom of that and taste the rest of just being still 
every once in a while and resting and playing as children do and being unhurried and then to be able to then bring that presence with us into the other six days of our week. And I think we, we, we all can picture being in the presence of certain people who are, who are unhurried and who are so present to you, you know, and that's, that's kind of like a, a lost art. Now, now so many people, we're, we're always half present to our kids, but we're half present to our phones, right? We're half, half present to our spouses, but we're half present to our phones. And we're always sort of kind of there, but kind of not. What would it be like to be people who are like, no, I'm always, I'm grounded in the person I'm with right now because my heart is at rest. I practice being still with the Lord. Uh, and I can offer that unhurried, grounded, rested presence to the people around me. I think it's very refreshing, life-giving for people to experience. All right, one more. How about uh, the quality of our contentment? This is a big one. The quality of our contentment. I'm thinking, of course, of the 10th commandment, verse 21, chapter 5. You shall not covet, right? Shall not covet. Uh, your neighbor's wife, or desire your spouse's house, or land, or male or female servant, ox, dog, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, as Christians, here's the idea. We have tasted and seen the goodness of God. We've experienced his forgiveness, his freedom, his spirit, his faithfulness, his promises, all the goodness that comes to us through him every day. And we take that in each day. We find our happiness in that. We find our contentment in that. And we learn this word that our culture doesn't understand. It's the word enough. <laughs> what the Lord is providing, it's enough. In fact, it's more than enough. It's really good. Life is hard, but the Lord is good. And he is enough for me. And we live in that enoughness, the contentment of that. Uh, we're living in a culture that is enamored with stuff, right? Being sold on bigger, better, faster, newer, uh, doing the comparison game with our neighbors and thinking I've got to have that and, and feeling that in the culture, I think, is experiencing the absolute restlessness of that. It's always more. It's always got to be the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And there's this thing inside that is never satisfied, but I just keep going after the next thing. And so I think as, as, as a church, we have this opportunity through our lives to say to the culture, hey, come, taste and see contentment. Taste and see what enough feels like. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord who provides us with everything we need for our enjoyment, provides us with everything we need to fulfill his, his plans for us. Um, content people are very refreshing to be around, aren't they? People who are grateful, who are just appreciate what they have, what the Lord gives them. And we have this opportunity to offer that to the world. So I'll leave you with that. This is a vocation for us. It's an opportunity to be able to say to the, to the world, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the only way we can do that is if we ourselves are actually tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And so that's the deep invitation every day to wake up and to taste and see indeed the Lord is good in this life he calls us into is the good life. And we have something to offer the world. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we consider this, this great 
vocation, this great role to be a light to the world. It feels, um, it's big. And I think most of the time we don't feel adequate to it. Uh, and yet, we, and we're not. And yet, you're the one who makes us adequate to this, this role to, to be light, um, to offer a compelling, attractive alternative to this world. And the only way we can do that is, is by living it ourselves. We can't fake this. And, and so that's my prayer today is, is wherever we need to be reminded today of your goodness, of your good news, of your faithfulness, of your forgiveness, of your freedom, of your abundance in our lives, even if our lives may be hard, that, that we might be reminded and we might take it in again. We might experience in some real ways your love and your goodness. And we might live in that every day. And as we do that, that we just trust that our lives will be uh, light, that they will be a refreshing alternative to those around us and and give us eyes to see what those opportunities might be too. We are your people and uh, we want to bear fruit for you in this world. And so we pray you do that through your spirit. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.